When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Slate Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, a new video service with more than 5,000 lectures. As a member, you can watch as many lectures as you want anytime on any device. For a limited time, Culture GabFest listeners can watch The Fundamentals of Photography for free by visiting thegreatcoursesplus.com slash culture. And by Roku and HBO Now. Roku players offer the biggest selection of streaming channels like HBO Now. Learn more and try HBO Now free for one month by going to roku.com slash gab. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Bunny Cop Edition. It's Wednesday, March 23rd, 2016, and on today's program, we're going to talk about Zootopia, the new Disney animated comedy about racial profiling, and then Underground, a show from WGN set on a slave plantation in the days of the Underground Railroad. And finally, Banksy and Elena Ferrante together at last. Do we as consumers of culture have the right to know who they are, find them out, and unmask them? I am hosting today because of technical difficulties, but I'm joined on the phone by Steve Metcalf. Hello, Steve. Hey, Julia. Uh, Dana is off, I believe, on vacation with her charming family. So in her place, ably, is the delightful Laura Miller. Hello, Laura. Welcome. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we commence, I will make two announcements. The first is that we have a live show coming up in two weeks on April 6th at the SVA Theater in New York. Please join us. You can find tickets to that show at slate.com slash live. And second, our Slate Plus segment this week is a doozy. We got a great listener question on Facebook. What four American artists would you put on the American culture equivalent to Mount Rushmore? No... More or fewer than four, me, Laura, and Steve will name our favorites. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that segment after the show. If you're not, please join at slate.com slash culture plus for bonus segments and to support Slate and the work that we do. All right, let us commence. Zootopia is the relatively new film out from Disney. It's actually been out for a couple weeks, and it's doing quite well at the box office in the manner of children's movies that do not suck. The plot is very explicitly racially charged and it wears its metaphor quite close to the surface. It takes place in a world where all mammals live together in peace, Zootopia. Uh, They've overcome their instincts from yesteryear to eat and devour one another and they cohabit a gigantic city and a fine land. Our protagonist is a bunny cop voiced by Jennifer Goodwin, who, um, despite her small stature, finally becomes the first bunny graduate of the police academy and joins the force. But she is viewed there as a token hire and relegated to uh, doling out parking tickets, uh, thus finding herself unable to prove her worth as a cop, 
until the plot of the movie commences. Let's start before we discuss by listening to a clip. Here you're going to hear a conflict between our protagonist, Judy Hopps, and her new boss on the police force, the, you'll be able to tell, Idris Elba-voiced Bogo. What is he? A Cape Buffalo, actually. Ah, right. Okay, a Cape Buffalo. Um, And then eventually they're interrupted by the assistant mayor, a sheep voiced charmingly by one-time Slate Culture Gabfest guest Jenny Slate. You're fired. What? Why? Insubordination. Now, I'm going to open this door and you're going to tell that otter you're a former meter maid with delusions of grandeur who will not be taking the case. I just heard Officer Hops is taking the case. Assistant Mayor Bellwether. The Mammal Inclusion Initiative is really starting to pay off. <laughs> mayor Lionheart is just going to be so just. No, no, let's not tell the mayor just yet. And I sent it, and it is done, so I did do that. All right. Steve, I'm going to start with you on this. Uh, we decided to check this movie out because it got slightly better notices than the average kids' movie, and also because it seems to very directly address a more complicated set of social issues than, say, Frozen, which is about, uh, well, not to undersell Frozen. It's about the, it's about complicated mourning, loss, and grief within families. But, you know, racial profiling is a slightly more hot-button topic than is typically addressed by this kind of film. Did this movie live up to the billing? Did you find it to be an interesting and somewhat sophisticated uh, read on racial politics that you would be delighted to show young children? Mm. Well, Julia, um, in preparation for the segment, I checked with Slate's research team, and it turns out it's true. Nobody has ever been a police officer before. <laughs> so I felt that was very authentic. Um, I took, uh, I think, a group of five kids ranging in age from 9 to 15 to go see it. They all gave it a thumbs up. Um, they all had, uh, they all participated in a thoughtful conversation about its, you know, parable status vis-a-vis racial profiling. Um, unsurprisingly, during the closing credits, you see John Lasseter's name, who he of Pixar, whose guidance seems to take simplistic, fabulous, uh, animated kids' worlds and infuse them with um, actual adult emotions and and dilemmas. And he certainly did it here. I thought it was by and large a success. I mean, it's a fun movie. It's clever. It's light. To my mind, it doesn't go gratuitously dark in search of a seriousness it can't sustain. Very good movie. Thumbs up. I have a question about I'm curious to hear Laura on this. um, Well, both of you on this, but Laura, you know, the, the force of the parable is that, first of all, will she break with fauna stereotype, right, and herself be able to be a police officer. And once she's cleared that hurdle, the larger part of the movie is about, will she judge her fellow, you know, citizen animals solely on a case-by-case basis? Don't you think the answer to that question is sort of curious? It's both yes and no, or am I missing something? Well, I think the weird thing about this movie, and the reason why it seems to have prompted a lot of tortured think pieces, is that it maps on a very urgent issue, or it's meant to map on a very urgent issue in society, and it does it in a kind of imperfect way. So, I mean, the biggest problem you might have with it is that human beings are actually all the same species, not different species. And to sort of make that comparison is a little bit uneasy. I mean, we are actually a lot more alike to each other across bounds of gender, because I saw the bunny thing as being significantly about her gender in a weird way, even though she um, she obviously comes from a whole bunny family. <laughs> I feel like this is so ridiculous. <laughs> but, um, right, right. She's underestimated. She's for very, being... she's small and yeah. she's sort of perky. And there's this sense that her her smaller size and her and her sort of politeness makes her less effective in the authoritative role as a police officer, which is what women have often faced. So there's a sort of weird way that it kind of maps onto gender as well. But, you know, the reality is that rabbits and Cape buffalo and uh, foxes and wolves are are actually really, really different from each other. And so there's a strange way that the movie is constantly sort of making you think that that they are inherently very different. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, she's so tiny compared to the elephant cop or whatever. And so it's really hard to to look at that and say, well, you know, aren't they really, really different? Um, I guess, though, I mean, my 
main issue with it. I thought it was adorable. I thought it was beautiful. I um, the animation was fantastic. The the way that the characters' emotions were performed were very idiosyncratic and completely charming. And I loved the city. I mean, I loved the environment that was created for the characters, the different sectors, the rainforest sector, the tundra sector. There was, I think, a desert sector. And they all were just these fantastic visual feasts. But I I, I got a little bummed out because I don't see, unlike you guys, I don't have kids and I don't see a lot of children's movies. But the ones that I do see are just so didactic. And that that kind of bummed me out. I felt like, wow, this whole movie is just kind of a lecture with like some fun moments in it. And, and it's just so pedagogical. And I it, and it, it depressed me a little bit. I mean, it felt like there isn't an excuse for children's culture when it isn't constantly like indoctrinating people into what we want them to believe, regardless of whether we actually believe that or not. And And so it did make me feel weirdly sad, I have to say. That's really interesting. I mean, I think there's sort of two issues there and we should dig in. Let's dig into the aptness of the racial metaphor and how troubling it is or isn't before we get to the larger one about how lessony children's uh, media should be. On the metaphor point, I mean, right, if you actually start to scrutinize this metaphor, it becomes like super problematic, right? I mean, the whole notion of when you think about racial profiling is that people have irrational fears of people who are actually quite like them based on uh, stereotypes that they shouldn't have because we're all fundamentally humans of different shades. And in this one, it's like, no, that tiger actually, it, like your fear is rational because <laughs> that tiger would have killed you and should kill, like might kill you. And so like at the second you start to apply any thought to the movie, the whole thing collapses. And on the other hand, although that is true, I would say that I generally find the movies like aggressive soup of thinking on this subject to be overall more to the good than for ill. Because as you say, a lot of these thoughts about the preconceptions we have about each other that we're aware of and that we're maybe not even aware of operate in so many different directions that they end up kind of canceling out the awkwardness and uneasiness of of that underlying metaphor and the overall lesson of accept people for who they are and who they strive to be and try not to think too much about what you anticipate of them based on how they look. Like, basically, the movie delivers despite the complication of the overriding themes. And I think the fact that, as you say, there's kind of a gender narrative in the, like, training montage. Um, There's a set of reflections on how, despite being a good bunny cop, she then fails on several metrics because she's trying so hard to prove that she fits in and makes it you know, can does have what it takes to be a cop within the system that then leads her to sort of overstep and the dynamics of acceptance then become somewhat complicated. She's striving to be part of the force on its own terms and that leads her to do a bunch of things that are actually not so admirable that she eventually has to reflect on. And there's some stuff about people's self-esteem and what people strive to be based on what people anticipate what they might be. I mean, there's just like a lot of meat there and um, a lot and of... there's also the can never be avoided follow your dream lecture that is in every version of children's entertainment that I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. So I will say the one twist on that that I liked was the parents are both loving and lovable. The bunny parents are both loving and lovable, but they also, they're the kinds of parents who subtly and not so subtly undermine your larger ambitions and they constantly tell her to settle and, you know, they're sort of uh, adorably safety first who are sort of restricting the horizon of possibility for this cute little bunny. I mean, I, I cannot believe overhearing all of us how we're talking about this movie. But but they begin with an allegory. Like, like John Lasseter movies begin with, like, moral complexity and allegorical richness. And so it's like it's kind of it's by us for us grad student edition. I agree, but that's, I think, maybe a little bit of feeds into my issue with the didacticness of it, which is that if it was a loose metaphor, then maybe so many people wouldn't be worried about how closely it matches any given social situation. And But it's such a 
tight metaphor that it feels not about a sort of a universal situation, but about a very specific situation, partly because it's so concerned with instructing the people who who see it on the correct way to think about things. And so um, because it's an urgent issue in the adult world. And so um, that kind of puts you in the position of sort of saying, well, how closely does it really match the real world situation it's about? And it kind of takes it out of the level of fable and turns it into more of like some weird political satire allegory or something. Right. Brilliantly put. And I think a good contrast um, would be to Beatrix Potter, right, who puts you into this animal universe that has a quasi-human logic to it and, um, and yet is utterly bewitching for also being kind of completely alien from the human world, and she doesn't embed the decodable allegory uh, into the work. And so it puts you into this uncanny valley between the human and the animal that whose effect is much larger than didactic. Wait, can we just take a minute, though, to say that Beatrix Potter is some trippy fucking shit. Like, I had not read it until I had children. And I think, in my judgment, much, much more children's literature and not just, you know, poor recent Hollywood tripe, but, like, stretching back to Grimm's fairy tales actually is fairly didactic at its core. Like, the weird old stranger lady might bake you and eat you. You know, like, the lesson is often embedded into children's literature. Part of what is demented about Beatrix Potter, and actually makes me want to go back and watch the Renee Zellweger movie and see how much they cutified her, is how horrifying those stories are. Mm -hmm. They're really uneasy and uncertain. You never know which way they're going to go. Random animals die all the time, like, very suddenly. They're, like, vicious and peculiar and alarming really, because they are so unsafe in many, many ways. I mean, I admire them for being distinctive. But I, 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 I resist the idea that we've gone from a world of complex Beatrice Potter-esque no, wonders. No, and I didn't, that, wasn't, that toward, wasn't what I was saying. I was just saying as, as a point of, con, of, of almost total contrast. I mean, they're, they're, I'm, and, and we should say that in 200 years, God willing, we still exist as a species. People will be reading Beatrix Potter. Highly unlikely they'll be watching Bunny Cop. You know, I mean, there is a... There's a weird entrancing power to this, you know, world that she brings you into for being so animal and profoundly antididactic. Well, and I think there's also a it, it, it's not a historical progression um, before the say the 20th century or the very, very late 19th century. All of children's culture was ex- just unbelievably didactic, and there was a whole concern that the Puritans had with different kinds of lies, which kinds of lies were okay. You know, not no lies were okay, but they were... Yeah, I was going to say, what Puritans are you talking about? <laughs> they, categorize, they categorize lies as like, you know, lies for gain or lies for this, but there was something called the sporting lie, which uh, is a term that I love, which is just a lie that is told just for the pleasure of hearing it. So basically, it's just all of fiction is a sporting lie, and this made them very anxious. So any kind of storytelling in the Puritan world had to be instructing you on how to be a good Christian and how to be humble and how to be obedient and how to, you know, all of these characteristics that needed to be drummed into these kids. And then in the 20th century, there we did have a blossoming in children's culture, and especially in children's books, which totally has not gone away in children's books, of the sporting lie, which is like where the wild things are. Like, what really is the message of that? It's more just about what it's like to be a child. It's more of like art as a, as opposed to instruction. And so that's a sort of, you know, I, I have a very glancing experience with children's films. And the more big budget they are, it seems like the more instructional they are. I think are. it's true. I think the, to get the machinery of a whole big animated film together, there's always some kind of lesson, even if the lesson is submerged more artfully than it is here. You know, like I think about one of my least favorite Pixar movies, Brave, which did the annoying thing of like having a female protagonist, but then having the whole movie be about her being a female protagonist, which is why as a mother of twins, that like the only twin literature out there is about like, you're a twin. It's okay. You're brothers, but you're not the same. You do things together. You do things. Together. It's like, <laughs> I, I feel that there's a, this is my million dollar idea. There's like a great series of kids books to be written where there's just some twin heroes and then they face issues that have nothing to do with their twindom. So in Inside Out, the female protagonist has a set of problems that, and there are lessons about that are learned, but the lessons are like slightly less dopey and elemental about her identity rendered with a fair amount of nuance but 
there's like still lessons about your feelings and you gotta like acknowledge your feelings and, and follow you, your dreams and, ah, <laughs> she definitely has to follow her dreams um all right well if you were following your dreams steve would you send people to see this movie oh i mean you know i if you're over the age of 18 make sure you're a uh, going to it with someone under the age of 18, but otherwise, yes. I actually went with my husband on Monday night to one of those new, like, recliner seat theaters. <laughs> That's what I went to, And too. it was full of grown-ups. It was just, like, grown-ups galore. Oh, right. I right. would probably pay money just to sit in that recliner, even if there was no movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the movie is Zootopia. It is everywhere and probably will be for decades to come. It's, in addition to having a bunch of semi-interesting lessons to it, quite beautiful. So go check it out. Now, here is the part of the show where I'm going to throw to myself to do the ads. <laughs> it's going to be a little weird, but basically I recorded all the ads while we were trying to get Steve's tech situation figured out. But then it never did get figured out, so now I'm hosting as well. So hopefully this will entertain you, listeners. Julia, who's our first sponsor? If you listen to this show, you are probably a nerd, the good kind, like us, which means you like to learn things. And hopefully you learn something from listening to us and other podcasts. I know we learn a lot as we prep and think about our topics. And that's why we thought you might be interested in this sponsor, The Great Courses. They have a new Great Courses Plus video learning service, which gives unlimited access to a huge library of The Great Courses lecture series and so many fascinating subjects. They have uh, an incredible opportunity for our listeners right now. You can watch one of their popular courses, The Fundamentals of Photography, absolutely free. It's taught by professional photographer and National Geographic fellow Joel Sartore, who walks you through great tips and tools to take better photos from advice on lighting, framing, perspectives, whatever it is that you might need to take your Instagrams to the next level. For a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream The Fundamentals of Photography, a $235 value, and hundreds of other courses for free. But this free offer is only available for a limited time, so hurry. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash culture. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash culture. All right. For our second topic, we are joined by the wonderful Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic. Hello, Willa. Hi. We asked Willa, what is the most interesting thing on television we should discuss right now? And when she learned we'd already talked about love and the sad romantic comedies, she said, what about Underground? So we are discussing Underground. This is a show that debuted a couple weeks ago on WGN, a quietly interesting network, I believe, that has also Manhattan and Salem, uh, a couple shows that... Uh, might be more ambitious than the name recognition of the network suggests. Underground is the story of the Underground Railroad, or a story set in the world of slaves trying to escape to freedom and the North in, I believe, 1857, I think it opens, uh, so just before the war. And it has a wide cast of characters who face both the torments of slavery rendered very vividly and a host of soapy assignations amongst one another. It's a little bit of an odd mix, Willa, what did you think of the show? So the Underground Railroad and slavery seem like very fertile settings for a television show. Like, like there, it's not possible to imagine a circumstance that has more stakes than right. slavery, basically. You don't have to explain why your show is going to be riveting or important in any way. That said, I thought that there was a lot of internal tension, it felt like, between the show and those inherent the inherent power of it and and wanting to make it sort of fun or enjoyable or entertaining. You could sort of imagine, I don't even know if this happened, but you can imagine like the network sitting on the shoulder of the show creators and being like, but are people going to watch the next episode? Like, let's do something where they want to see what happens because it's it's super enjoyable. Just a kind of real tension between the, you know, the horror of the setting and giving people a reason to tune back in every week. I mean, I think that this is one of those locations where TV and movies, you know, you only have to sit down to watch a movie that's about something tragic or traumatic once. And it's been hard for people. I mean, people don't sit down to see Schindler's List. I mean, Julie, you've written pieces about this. You know, so, um, and, and for a TV show, even though in the age of binge watching, maybe you only have to sit down twice, you know, you do have to repeat, repeatedly go back to it. And I thought that they kind of overdid some of the silliness in a kind of hopes of like being like, no, no, it's about slavery, but like in a fun way. <laughs> oh, God, you made it sound even worse than I thought it was. <laughs> Laura, what did, you, what did you make of this show? I would love to see something in this setting that felt a little bit more like it was 
trying to really deal with what it was like for everybody to live in this horrible institution. But it was really hard for me to think of how to turn it into entertainment. Like, I can see why it was a problem. But I felt like the whole sort of prison break element where, like, I have to get this doohickey in order to do this, to do that, it felt weirdly, like, fluffy compared. I mean, even though it wasn't, it felt like, you know, like they could establish the situation and then they immediately had to show the characters trying to get out of it. Right. And I mean, there is a there's basically like a, a really accelerated escape plot, which is that they yeah. the main character, who's this man named Noah, is sort of leads a group of other slaves to escape on the Underground Railroad. But it happens. Basically, the plot goes into motion and it's supposed to be planned in six days and it basically happens in two episodes where it is kind of one of those things that you'd think would be better for being slowed down and being the arc of the entire season because it could stand up to that and and something about them trying to like get every device like they have to they basically have to do all this quest stuff like they have to get a quest for a gun no, structurally it's like Ocean's Eleven they're yeah. like assembling a crack team yeah. right and then they just jam through it in like one or two episodes in a way that makes each one of those Getting hurdles paper decoding the right. song or seem like less finding significant a bridge than it or is. whatever yeah and not enough time building the world that this is happening in yeah. which is the thing that we don't really have in American culture like it's just a thing we don't want to look at and so we don't really have very many accounts of what it was like to live in this situation and and it just is it feels like there's just like one toe goes into what it's like to live in a condition of slavery. And then immediately the trajectory is outward of it. And it's like you can't even linger on it. All the stuff that are that is about the relationship between the people who work in the home versus people who work in the field, how you get things out of these people who have enslaved you, how you form relationships in when you have no control over your own life. Like all of that is amazing and seems like such a great subject for a drama. And yet it's like it can't stay there. It just doesn't want yeah. to linger on that. I mean, I think one, I definitely watch the show with a feeling of opportunity squandered. I'm curious, Steve, what you make of this supposition we're sort of dancing around here, which is that it's somehow disrespectful to the memory of the horrors of the institution of slavery to infuse it with plot. I'm, I'm overstating my my colleagues' remarks, I think, for effect. But, do, you know, do you think there's a way to do this and the show has suffered in the execution? Or do you think that the notion of a pot boiler set on a plantation is ill-conceived? A uh, little bit of both. I think for all the opportunities for high moral drama and thrills that the subject offers and how quickly you enter the world and how already part, you know, how much already it's part of our kind of moral imagination and narrative imagination. The problem is, you know, Antebellum South is a natural background to stereotype and melodrama. I think this is what Laura was sort of pointing to, and that you you resort very quickly, if you're at all lazy or in a hurry, to, to essentially just stereotype to familiar tropes. And um, the opportunity was there. I liked it starts with Kanye. I mean, there's a chase scene that could have been out of roots, but it was... Um, you know, the soundtrack to it was, uh, was mod hip-hop, you know, it was Kanye, and I thought, okay, this is going to be grabby, smart, and weird, and at moments it really is. But, Laura, what I want to see is someone create a show like this, but out of, you know, uh, Edmund Wilson's book, Patriotic Gore, which sounds preposterous, and yet it gets at what I think you're getting at, which is that people in the antebellum South presumably didn't just occupy one social role, which was completely transparent and perspicuous and placed them either on the right side of the issue of slavery or on the wrong side, right? I mean, what was horrific about it, presumably, was that in addition to there being Southern Bells who loved an aristocratic lifestyle about which they had to barely give a second thought because the labor supporting it was free and chattel, there were Southern Bells who were tormented by this. And yet, lacked, or I should say, had the normal quotient of moral courage, and so did very little about it. That's, you know, it's an opportunity to tell deeply interesting stories with thriller elements. I mean, there's no reason to forsake that. And I will just add quickly, I mean, this is an interesting moment in the history of TV where you have network executives who want the magic and the heat of streaming and binge-watching, you know, gourmet TV. At the same time, you know, I felt strongly this, the business model behind WGN is still having people appointment view and watch ads in between carefully 
portioned out, you know, uh, episodic TV. And this just seems to me it suffers from that hybridity in a way. It's just a real hybrid between something that wants to be weird and creative driven, but also is kind of platformed for the old business model. There's a lot of things to say in response to that, and one of them is I'm not actually sure that that's the case about WGN, not not to get too far into the weeds here, but basically the way that cable networks work is they make a ton of money, most of their money, from fees paid by the cable companies to carry them. So like AMC, for example, makes so much more money because people wanted to watch Mad Men and they get fees from the huge cable carriers than they do from advertisers. I mean, obviously, they also get to charge advertisers those fees. But I would imagine that WGN, which is still not on all, is not on all televisions, is not carried by all cable providers, that their incentive is basically to have a bunch of buzzy shows that are either critically acclaimed or, you know, lauded by a small, like a small, passionate group of people that can get them those rates more than more than particularly advertising. Although I think that you can see in this, I understand exactly what you're saying about why it seems like it's in this relationship with um, sort of advertising specifically, because it has a little like of the pop stay in your seat. Like uh, act breaks and a twist before the exactly. commercial break. and um, the... That it maybe wouldn't have needed. I will say that the other thing about this show, and like, you know, Shonda Rhimes can only do so much like heavy lifting in the world of television and certainly in the world of television about black people. But Scandal, as whatever one thinks about it, has some of this like I'm in serious territory, but I am just going to be crazy, audacious and twisted and and like use music in interesting ways. Uh, Not that she should be making the show underground, but I think that you could imagine a version of underground, like as you say, that is a little bit, um, is simultaneously more serious, but like less respectful of what it's supposed to be respectful of. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one thing we should note and that I think is really laudable about the show is that the there are just like a ton of black actors on it, a ton of black roles. It's fundamentally like a gigantic drama about black people, which in the post-Empire era there are some of, but like there's still not that many of those. And, you know, most of the white characters are like types who talk in the language from the outline of the episode as opposed to actual dialogue. Like one of my favorite lines was that the abolitionist wife being like, we just couldn't understand how this decision would change our everyday lives. <laughs> it's like, that is a, that's like what you put down. It's like, write a scene that conveys that. Not just like my husband and I just went around last night being like, we just couldn't understand how this decision would affect our everyday lives. You know, so the writing, the, the writing is bad and the writing is not that much better among the black characters. And the, there's still types. There's the, you know, the house mistress and the, you know, the kid who who's his dad, really, and the strong one and the religious one and the this and the that. But the there's just like so many slaves on the plantation and so many of them in cahoots in this uh, escape plan that they end up feeling like they have much more specific characters and relationships, again, still playing within like there should be one who's sleeping with the master and there should be one who does that, you know, like within the broad types. It's it's not the nuanced the most nuanced possible version I mean, of this show. But, like, there's, like, a lot of complicated black relationships on the show, and it feels like, as it evolves, they will only get more interesting right. and complex. And in that sense, the fact that the white characters, certainly on the plantation, are so such stereotypes feels kind of fine. Because it's, like, I they're mean, not, it's not, not fine point. insofar as you don't want any stereotypes on your show. But, yes, like, it's, if, the, if the mistress of the plantation is going to be this hideous female racist, which I think in kind of keeping with sort of literature about, you know, fictions about slavery, it is often the wife of the master who is, like, even worse, you know, is the Lady Macbeth. But that's fine, basically, because, like, they're not, they are not the point. I think that um, the stuff with, among the black characters will get, you know, TV just gets more complicated and more enriching as it goes on. But it, it didn't start out in some, like, really fresh new way. Right. But I'm really glad this show exists, even though it feels a little uh, cardboard and hokey. Like, thank no, God somebody's finally making a show about no, this. Like we have a billion shows about, like, white guys who are tortured in some or way. Or gangsters. You know, yeah. we, like, you know, shows about, like, assassins. It's like, yeah. let this be the first of many shows about... Yeah. The black experience in all of its details historically in America. And in many details and in many registers. Okay, so I would recommend that people watch it and try it just because it feels really interesting and novel to see TV go to this terrain. Laura, 
thumbs up, thumbs down for people watching it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, less for the breathless thriller plot and more for those little glimpses that we get of what people's lives were like. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think as a thing that is interesting about what's happening in television and about what's happening in America, it's extremely watch it. Steve? Uh, Yeah, I I side with the thumbs up, give it a try. If you find it too sudsy, you know, you know, it's not a stain on your moral conscience to drop it. Um, and let's hope it opens some doors for the next few shows. All right. The show is Underground on WGN. It premiered, I think, a week or two ago. Willa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right. Now we have a word from our next sponsor. Our second sponsors this week are Roku and HBO Now. Roku players give you the biggest selection of streaming channels, plus innovative features like voice search, unbiased search results, and private listening via the Roku remote or your mobile app. With HBO Now, one of the featured channels, you get all of HBO, including every season, every episode of HBO's addictive original series, past and present, plus the biggest and latest movies before any other streaming service. No TV package required, and it's all available on Roku players. I am happy to have the opportunity to read this ad because we just switched to Roku at my house and it is so good. So often my Monday night scramble of prep before recording this show involves like figuring out whether I remember to set the TiVo for the thing. And then because we have a TiVo and not a DVR, then we didn't have on demand. And then if I wanted to watch something that was on Amazon, I couldn't get it on the TV. So I had to watch on my little laptop and hard to have my husband. Anyway, it's a pain in the butt. It's really nice to be able to get all the different streaming ways you can get TV on your screen of choice in your living room or wherever you put it. And Roku is like a very seamless, easy to set up way to do that. I guess I should stipulate that like the gendered girl that I am, my husband actually set it up. But it seemed very easy for him. He did it extremely quickly. So visit roku.com slash gab to learn more about Roku players and to get a free one month HBO Now trial. All right, our third topic is slightly more conceptual in nature. In the last few weeks, we've had two possible potential outings or doxings, or I'm not sure quite what you call it these days, but the person behind the art of the artist Banksy may have been identified, and the authoress behind the writings of the writer Elena Ferrante may also have been identified. In both cases, by digital sleuths who put together a trail of clues and then stood up with their announcements. I've found this mysterious artist and then had their pronouncements confirmed by no one. In Banksy's case, a group of scholars used a set of like geolocating tools to identify where a bunch of the art had been made and when and come up with nodes and hotspots and then associate those pubs and residential addresses with a list of the top 10 or so suspects of who might be Banksy. And lo, they found that the person that most people think might be Banksy already, uh, a man named Robin Gunningham. And in the case of Elena Ferrante, an Italian classicist decided to use some of the biographical clues in the Neapolitan novels and the other writings of Elena Ferrante to start looking through people who attended the Scuola Normale in Pisa, which is a a school that factors into the Neapolitan books uh, in the 60s, which he himself did, and found that there was only one woman who was from Naples originally during the specific time frame who's grown up to be a professor back in Naples who actually seems to have a set of interests around the kind of political movements and economics of the region, which is one of the backdrops of the books. So he published a big essay in the Corriere della Sera asserting that it was this woman who promptly denied it. And both of these events happened in the last three weeks. So we thought we'd have a fight, fight, fight about whether or not we should <laughs> try to unmask mysterious artists who would like their work to remain shrouded in mystery. Or their identities to remain shrouded. True. Yes, they want their work to be seen in their identities. Laura, should we leave these poor people in peace and allow their identities to remain shrouded in mystery? (laughs) I'm always in favor of shrouds of mystery. I think that they add spice to life. And um, I don't actually really care who either of them are. Um, With Elena Ferrante, I, I feel that although she's made certain statements about how refusing to sort of attach like a biographical or, you know, a real world figure to these works. It changes the way the works are received. The feeling I've always gotten from them is that she just basically doesn't want to be a public figure the way that she would if she was identified as as this author and 
she doesn't want her life scrutinized. And, you know, it's completely understandable. A lot of writers are really introverted people who like their privacy and, and um, don't want to be the focus of that kind of attention. Um, with Banksy, though, it, there's a slightly different reason to not reveal who he is, because him not being identified is part of the whole performance that is Banksy. I mean, that he could be anywhere, that anybody could be him. He you don't know who made this thing. It just sort of appears on the street. He's sort of um, an everyman in a weird way, which goes along with being a street artist. So in, in both cases, I feel like you kind of ruin it for you, the sort of appreciator of Banksy, if you know who he is, as opposed to having him be this sort of Batman-like figure that just sort of <laughs> appears to, to perform these wonders. And then with Elena Ferrante, I just feel like if the woman doesn't want you to know who she is, mm-hmm. leave her the fuck alone. Yeah, uh, uh, Laura, you completely stole my thunder. I mean, uh, it, it's it's integrated into the work. It's part of the work that Banksy is anonymous, that he you know, appears presumably in the middle of the night, um, leaves a piece of trenchant satirical art uh, that's utterly specific to the location it's been left in. Then he disappears, but he very much wants to be a public figure as Banksy, as this kind of superhero uh, figure. And then also, I think it's important relative to the art world and where the art world is now. I mean, the art, you know, certainly since the Impressionists, right, the art world has had a myth of the artist that's integral to the work, you know, the highest expression of which is Van Gogh, right? Like, and, you know, per- personally, I know artists whose careers have taken off because of the relationship of their work to their biography, and other artists I think are equally good whose careers have not taken off because the biography does nothing to juice the work uh, with buyers and collectors, rich buyers and rich collectors. Banksy very much wants to create work that comments on the art world and on the gallery world, uh, on the auction world, uh, how prices are made and set vis-a-vis reputations. And as part of that, he doesn't want uh, his own biography to be public. I both desperately want to know who he is and desperately don't want to find out. In the case of Ferrante, um, it reminded me a little of these amazing stories that the New York Times went and got um, after uh, J.D. Salinger died, and they sent a reporter up to, I guess, Hanover, New Hampshire, or whatever town it was they lived in. And what I loved most about it is, in fact, he he didn't appear to have wanted a kind of mythomania to attach to him for having been so obsessively reclusive and private. In fact, he wasn't obsessively reclusive and private in in relation to anybody except the press. He had a full embodied and present existence among the townspeople of Hanover, New Hampshire. He was known as Jerry. They all knew that he was J.D. Salinger. They appeared to conspire to keep the press at bay. All he didn't want was to see part of his own being you know, kind of uploaded into people's imaginations via the media, and he wanted to be left alone when he wanted to be left alone. It seems to me Ferrante is much more um, the latter, and Banksy is much more the former. Uh, this is all very nice, very nice interpretations. <laughs> oh, God, like, no. <laughs> it's Uh-oh. the job of journalists to find shit out. And also, oh. what is the point of a shroud of mystery, except for well. to create a mystery that it is really fun to go try and solve? I will say that I recently began an exchange with a pseudonymous person who, before I had interacted with this person at all, seemed like an incredibly fun and interesting figure. And then as this communication extended over a period of time and I started to feel like, oh, this person's kind of badgering me. All the mystique fell away. Mm. What is Laura talking about? This is a shroud of mystery. <laughs> this is a shroud of mystery. There's a, there's, a, there's a figure called Zardulu who... Um, <laughs> only, only in your imagination, Laura. No, there was a whole Reply All podcast about Zardulu who supposedly is responsible for faking certain viral phenomena. And um, I tweeted about this episode of this podcast and then Zardulu contacted me and we've had this exchange and and I felt like at the end of it I felt like I was so much more into Zardulu when I knew so much less about her. I'm not saying that the process of trying to figure something out might not ruin it for you or other people but I'm just saying like (laughs) The, the truth is out there to be found out. That is the job of journalists. Go uh, wait, figure no, things no, no, out. Also, wait a second, but it's also the job of journalists to distinguish between what truths are 
worthy of, um, you know, uh, the, uh, like what truths provoke the public's right to know and what which don't. You presumably you wouldn't go try to find out um, to a man which actors in Hollywood who present themselves are straight or actually maybe not straight and out them against their will. I mean, there's no public right to know that as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I don't understand why Banksy doesn't have a right to his own privacy. What journalistic right or public necessity is being invoked here to say that, you know, this person doesn't deserve to, to live anonymously and work anonymously. Uh, I don't think he does. He's one of the most fascinating and important and influential artists of our time. And frankly, he's someone who we've accorded a great amount of control in his own image making. I mean, that whole documentary exit through the gift shop that we talked about on this podcast is like maddening for how produced it is and how self-inflationary it is and how much it cements this mystique, which of course is part of the performance, but also makes you want to unpack the performance and see where the person is coming from. And, and you know, like if, if you don't under, if you can't get outside of the work of art, it also makes it harder to critique the work of art and talk about what's good about it and what's bad about it and how it's functioning and, and you know, how it it's working in the world. And I think it's useful. It's useful for students of contemporary art to like know who this guy is and you know, okay. how he's oh. achieved what he is. Like, I think it's interesting information that's completely fair game for people to try to ferret out, just as it's fair game for him to try to conceal it and never okay. acknowledge it, even if it is this guy. Okay, fair enough. I want to hear you. I, I, I can see the ways in which Banksy's manipulation of his own public image invites that level of scrutiny and curiosity Okay, fine. But Ferrante, Ferrante, we don't know what her or his, but presumably now her situation really is, and what the reasons, you know, for desiring privacy might be. If you had an avenue to out Elena Ferrante and her real identity, Julia Turner, editor of Slate magazine, you would assign that piece? 1,000%. Oh, you're fired. (laughs) I have to say, Steve, that I kind of agree with Julia, even though I don't care who Elena Ferrante is. I do think that I I disagree with her. I do think that it is relevant to her work who she is. Otherwise, I wouldn't ever read biographies of writers or artists. But but don't you think there's a living dead distinction posthumously? Come on. All right. Her rights have been, you know, have, have gone into the earth with along with her. So and then now it's time for the scholars and the scholar vultures to take over. But now while she's alive, I just think this is wrong. I think there are moments when the algorithm doesn't decide for us, right? And those are the hard choices. And this is one of the ones where I would invoke editorial discretion. And I would say this person, my prurience and the public's craving for gossip doesn't outweigh this person's desire. Look, I can imagine an answer. I can imagine figuring out who she is and having there be an answer to what her reason for desiring secrecy was you know, that she would, like, ask the set of journalists who found out that journalists might consider. I mean, jur- you know, journalists do that all the time. They they get asked to not reveal things they've discovered, and then they make their own decision about whether they think that's the responsible thing to do. I can't, off the top of my head, think about what that situation might be if she were in some kind of mortal danger where she lived oh, or having written or what, you okay, know, like, I... Of reasons. Right. There, there could be something. Like, I'm not saying that under no circumstances would I ever, knowing that information, not publish it. It's po- definitely possible to imagine some. But, I, you know, to your point about dead, well, okay, we don't know what set of rules she's laid out with her publishers, who are the only two people who have publicly acknowledged knowing who she is, or he, I guess. And uh, what if she kicks it and then the rules are like, torch the notes, never find out. Like right. there's an opportunity to figure out who she is now that she while she's presumably still alive right. uh, that that we have that we might not have later. Also, Steve, let me ask you this: If it turned out, as some people have speculated, I think in in a ridiculous fashion, that Elena Fronte is a man, actually the person who's behind the pseudonym is a man. Don't you think that would be worth reporting? Well, my understanding is that that speculation reached enough of a pitch that the publishers came out and said, we're going to give you this one piece of information, and then you got to go the fuck away. It's not a man. Elena Ferrante is a woman. Uh, but that's what they would say if it was a man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is why, right, they're part of the PR machine around Elena Ferrante, the figure, and it is the job of journalists to bust PR. Like, is I'm it, is it the job to, like, lacerate these myths and... <laughs> I will not abdicate. <laughs> oh my God! Look, first of all, you can't inv- you can't invoke the 
ethical journalistic standards that are appropriate to Watergate in every instance. And, and I would say primary among them is literary journalism just doesn't operate according to the same canons and the same, you know, default right to know it all. Like, to me, once this person is deceased, you know, I mean, maybe we can do the math on it in 30 years. It's, this person would be 100 years old. You know, we owe a different debt to posterity than we owe to contemporaneity. Then I think there may be a scholarly interest in knowing who this person is. Or possibly, maybe it'll be one of literature's beautiful mysteries. I mean, what was interesting, Laura, to me is, is reading about some of the background material on this, is how quickly people who desperately wanted to remain pseudonymous were revealed, George Eliot, you know, principal among them. But, I mean, people, it, this, is a, this is really a unicorn. People really get found out, as you would imagine. I mean, that's I don't know. Thing. I don't know how much I believe most writers really want to remain anonymous. No, no, no. I, well, do you, so someone like George Eliot was sort of secretly complicit. Yes, of course. I think George Eliot always wanted people to know that she wrote those books. Okay. Well, anyway, it's interesting then from the other point of view, which is that this person seems to be completely sincere. And I have a hard time understanding why my I don't understand what's being satisfied other well, than my curiosity. That... Other than my curiosity, and I don't understand why my curiosity trumps her desire to be anonymous. I mean, the thing that's complicated about it to me, and I, I see your point about the distinction between Watergate and literary journalism, although I actually think the imperative of the journalist applies across both cases. But but, but to me, like the, the, the thing that's confusing here, a little bit confounding, is I do believe that books can be authorless, right? I do believe that there's a fascinating way to read literature that is just the text as text. And I actually find it to be generally a more satisfying way to read literature than the part where you really think about the fact that Keats was like a tiny man and died young and then Emily Dickinson lived in the attic and whatever the hell else you think about when you think about the authors of, and you know, that Hemingway was a big swaggering doofus with a gorgeous manse in Cuba. Like, uh, you know, the, 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 the works themselves to me are more fascinating when you don't know that much about the author. And once you get into biographical and historical accounting, I understand it's more fashionable at the moment, but I find it less magical and less like a less interesting way to read literature. So as a reader, I'm perfectly happy to read Ferrante's books authorless. But on the other hand, there is this other layer of reading where you 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 encounter the text as a text and you see it as a pure little dollop of literature and you see how it functions and and what its mechanisms are and how it speaks to like the timeless condition of being alive as its own little jewel box. And then also you want to broaden out sometimes and see when was this made and in the context of what and whether, what other art is it speaking to and what were the influences of the person who crafted it and what did they make before and what did they make after and what else might they have made? I mean, for all we know, Elena Ferrante is like some other fantastic Italian person whose work this set of work could be in conversation with and it's like her alter ego or whatever. You know, there's like a hundred different potential answers that might deepen and enrich our understandings of the work. And that, for me, is the thing that's the most complicated, is that fundamentally I care more about the first way of reading literature, which seems like it would speak more to the, you know, leave Elena alone mode of criticism here, as opposed to the ferret her out from the trenches. But I think both ways of looking at books matter, and that means that people can posit their theories and have them rebuffed uh, as long as they want to. And eventually, maybe somebody will figure it out, and then we'll figure out why. And at that point, she'll have enough money that she can just, like, buy a fucking island <laughs> in the sea and hang out there mm -hmm. by herself and not get overly bothered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I recognize that uh, that argument has some weaknesses when you extend it forward. <laughs> Stipulated. All right. Well, uh, we had a rollicking good fight on this subject. Please join our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, to let us know whether you side with me, Steve, or Laura on the subject of artists, and do we have the right to find out and know their identities when they try to keep them shrouded in mystery. Mystery. All right. Now is the moment in our show when we endorse. All right, Laura, you're our guest. You may go first. I'm going to endorse season two of a British police detective show. Actually, it's not really a police detective show. It's a police show um, called Happy Valley that is streaming on Netflix. The main character is, I believe, a police sergeant, not a detective. It stars Sarah Lancashire as this main character, Catherine, and she 
is dealing with both sort of petty criminals and their amazing stupidity and perversity. And then throughout the course of the six-episode series, she also deals with a bigger case. Um, in this case, a, um, you know, a possible serial killer that is loose in this rather smallish Yorkshire town where she works. Um, but a case that she's not really allowed to work on because one of the victims is the mother of a culprit that she apprehended in the first series whom she had a sort of personal relationship with. And so her life is just sort of a web of connections in this town. She lives with her sister, who's a recovering alcoholic. She lives with the that she's raising the son of her daughter who committed suicide. And um, she's just embedded in this community. And it's just a wonderful depiction of working class life and work. And it's kind of fascinating because she's outside of this investigation. The detectives are much more middle class, better dressed, better haircuts. And yet she's kind of still working on it on her own in a way. And, um, She's got this amazing presence, uh, Lancashire. She has. She's kind of a big woman, and part of the the whole concept of the character is that she's sort of physically imposing, which is really unusual in police shows about women. Mm. Um, there's they're a, usually little bunnies, right? Yeah, they're usually actually little bunnies, or they work with their emotions. She's she's an emotional person. I mean, it is one of these shows that kind of gives credit to the fact that the world basically sustained by the work of middle-aged women, which I particularly appreciate. It's just got a lot of heart and soul and grit to it, and it's completely addictive. I pretty much had to watch all six episodes all the way through. The first season had a few sort of lurid or melodramatic touches to it, but the second season is really just perfect as far as I can tell. All right, Steve, what have you got? Uh, Julia, I am endorsing, uh, of all things, a Vox dot com piece about Jacobin magazine, which sounds a lot like inside baseball and maybe is in some ways, but it's something else as well, which is one kind of journalist, a journalist who's kind of in the data journalist mold, uh, taking very seriously young, equally young. I mean, this is a young journalist named Dylan Matthews who writes for Vox, taking seriously equally young, equally hip journalists who are very much in the political slash, you could say, public moralist mode, uh, even though they work with data quite intelligently. And what I thought was interesting about the piece, and is not driven home with irony at all, is that these young people who started Jacobin are actually acting as entrepreneurs, um, which is to say that they are perfect exemplars of a kind of craft-scale free enterprise, even though they are producing uh, a magazine that's really devoted to, you know, you know, to the spirit of someone named Bautsky, who I really didn't know about, and Rosa Luxemburg and other such leftists. It's a magazine directed at the young people who flock to Bernie, and therefore it may signal the direction that certainly the left is going in over time just because of demographic fate. Um, anyway, highly recommended. Cool. I saw that on Twitter and thought I'd like to read that. Now I, now doubly so. All right. I will conclude. My endorsement this week is uh, an institution very familiar to people raising young children in New York City. It is the American Museum of Natural History. What a great place. I had not spent that much time there until I had kids since uh, since the era in one's early 20s when it was fun to go there, not in one's full faculties. And it remains a very delightful place to be, very kid-friendly. But it's a particularly good moment to go for three reasons. One, they have a new show just opening called The Dinosaurs Among Us. And longtime listeners of the show will know, uh, will may be able to anticipate why that was a good show for me. It's just a stealth show about birds. Birds are the dinosaurs <laughs> among us. So you like for bringing your kids to a cool dinosaur exhibit. But really, it's just like lots of great slow motion videos of owls flapping their wings and lots of side by side comparisons of ostrich claws and dinosaur claws and, you know, Really, what is a what is an ostrich if not just like a gigantic overraptor, right? And uh, then, or maybe a small one. Anyway, it's a very fun exhibit. They also have some model renderings and kind of classic, old-fashioned, you know, American Museum of Natural Histories like diorama style. I mean, they're not as elaborate as those, but the kind of like three D model 
thing they're good at of just like the dinosaurs with the feathers on them, the thing that we've all been reading more and more about, but that hasn't been incorporated as quickly into most museum exhibits. You get to see some feathered dinosaurs, which will blow your mind a little bit. So that's reason one. Reason two, somewhere in, I think, Argentina, some paleontologists discovered something they decided quite wisely on branding terms to call the titanosaur, (laughs) gigantic dinosaur. So there's like a brand new skeleton that they very cannily designed to be too big for the room into which they have put it. So the the neck like sort of ekes out the door because they built a whole brand new room for the goddamn skeleton, uh, but it doesn't even fit the room. Like what a canny little bit of of museum craft, right? But the titanosaur is like genuinely a mind-blowingly huge creature that's fun to be in the presence of of, um, the, I think it's a it's a model of the skeleton, I think, and then there's some actual fossils there. And then finally, they just have renovated three rooms of the dinosaur floor, including the fun little round cornucopia room. So I may be getting into the weeds for people who have never even been to the American Museum of Natural History. If you have never been, you should absolutely go. And if you haven't been in a while, now is a particularly opportune moment to go because of these three exhibits. All right. That's our show. You'll find links to the, some of the things we talked about today on our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can join us to discuss these topics at facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers, of course, is the chief creative officer of the Panoply Network. You can get all of those great shows at itunes.com slash panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Laura Miller and Stephen Metcalf, I'm Julia Turner. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week.